Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Reflux Radio. My name is Sue Stephen, Specialist Nurse for Reflux UK, and today we're going to be exploring physiology tests. The single most important part of a patient's treatment process is correctly diagnosing their symptoms. Problems originating in the esophagus, stomach and small bowel, known as the foregut, can cause many different symptoms and quite different pathology and diseases can often mimic each other. They can, of course, also affect other body symptoms, including the throat and lungs. Consequently, relying solely on a history and physical examination are often not sufficient to reach a definitive diagnosis or to guide a tailored treatment plan. Tests and investigations, therefore, play a vital role in this process. But the interpretation and understanding of their strengths and weaknesses are just as important as the results that they provide. So while we, of course, often initiate these ourselves, Frequently, when we see patients, they have already undergone many different tests, but remain frustrated at what they see as inconclusive results. Over the years, the tests that are available to investigate the foregut have evolved enormously, from looking at mostly at structure and anatomy to increasingly assessing function. This evolution has been driven by technological advances. For instance, in the 1970s, Johnson and Demeester published their seminal paper describing esophageal pH monitoring in patients with esophageal reflux disease, which is still used today. They could measure acid only using a complex and cumbersome recording process. Today, we have the ability to measure not only acid reflux, but also non-acidic reflux, gaseous and solid reflux, and to match these to patient symptoms. And we can even use wireless technology to avoid nasal catheters and a tiny capsules, which will measure reflux for several days. As new technologies have become available, our understanding of pathology and how these impact on symptoms has correspondingly developed. For instance, we can now measure and define problems in the small bowel and stomach that cause symptoms that appear to originate in the esophagus. Tests build a picture of causes of an individual's symptoms and help untangle often complex presentations. And modern investigations are also integral to guide advice as to what the best treatment may be. Today we simply couldn't manage patients properly without them. Tonight I am joined by two leading experts in the field of diagnosing and managing patients with foregut symptoms and who have worked collaboratively for a long time, recognising the importance that accurate testing and interpretation of results play in building a picture of the patient's diagnosis that can then be presented to a multidisciplinary team for a discussion. One is a clinical gastrointestinal scientist who has set up a specialist centre for functional gut testing and the other is a clinician specialising in reflux. They both understand the complex nature associated with obtaining accurate diagnosis through testing and how working together ensures an informed understanding of patient symptoms. Nick Boyle is the founder of Reflux UK and one of the country's leading experts in the management of gastroesophageal reflux disease. He trained in general surgery and subsequently specialist surgery of the esophagus and stomach at Guy's and St Thomas's Hospital in London and in laparoscopic surgery at the Minimal Access Therapy Training Unit in Guildford. He was appointed as a consultant surgeon in 2000. Nick established a multidisciplinary team to improve the management of gastroesophageal reflux disease in 2013. In 2015, he founded Reflux UK to establish specialist centres to treat patients with symptoms of gastroesophageal disease and to introduce the multidisciplinary team approach more widely. They now have centres in London, Kent, Manchester and Birmingham 
and Reflux UK has become the largest specialist partnership of clinicians treating reflux symptoms outside of the NHS in the UK. Nick and his colleagues now see over a thousand people every year and arrange many hundreds of tests to investigate patients with foregut symptoms, many caused by gastroesophageal reflux disease. He personally tailors surgery to patients' individual situations, including all anti-reflux procedures, including fundification. He's the country's leading expert in link surgery and has one of the largest series in Europe. Nick has published widely, and most recently, earlier this year, he and our other contributor this evening, Anthony Hobson, published a paper linking small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, otherwise known as CBU, with reflux symptoms. He speaks regularly at national and international scientific meetings and is the Vice President of the European Foregut Society. Welcome, Nick. Anthony Hobson is a clinical scientist and clinical director of the Functional Gut Clinic. He is also National Chair of the Association of GI Physiologists as part of the British Society of Gastroenterology. He has experience in all aspects of GI physiology, but specialises in gastroesophageal reflux and IBS. Anthony has performed over 10,000 diagnostic procedures and overseen over 20,000 procedures with his team utilising state-of-the-art high-resolution esophageal manometry techniques and a broad range of ambulatory esophageal and gastric pH techniques for accurately measuring all types of gastroesophageal reflux. He has performed preoperative and postoperative assessments in over 200 patients being assessed for the Lynx anti-reflux device, the most in the UK. He continues to actively publish research in this area and presents at both national and international conferences as an invited speaker. Welcome, Anthony. Good evening and welcome to you both. So, Anthony, I was wondering um, if you could tell me why you actually started the Functional Gut Clinic and what convinced you to mortgage your house and start a new business dedicated to GI physiology? Thanks, Sue. Hi, everyone. Yeah, it's a really good question, Sue, because it's the same question that my wife asked me when I was walking her down to the solicitors to sign sign the loan forms. You know, I'd worked in the NHS, I'd worked in academia, I'd worked in the private sector at, um, in, in the pharmaceutical industry, and also in, in the private healthcare sector. And everywhere I went, I was kind of frustrated by the lack of, of vision around GI physiology and how, you know, this is you know, an important area for me, but it was always seen as a kind of peripheral input to the bigger services like endoscopy and surgery and all these other things. And yet the decisions that were made were often based on the results that, that we had. And the profession as a whole was really struggling at the time. You know, there was a lack of leadership, there was a lack of training, there was a lack of all sorts of other things going on. And I was actually asked by the British Society of Gastroenterology in 2012, 2013, to deliver a lecture on the future of GI physiology for the 21st century. And so I spent quite a lot of time doing this and presented it. And I presented this in front of, you know, a few hundred people up in, up in Glasgow. And it was, you know, one of those moments when you finished when there was just kind of silence at the end and, and people were looking at it. And what I was really presenting was that geophysiology is really important. It's quite exciting. Uh, you know, from a financial point of view, it can generate reasonable income for the gastroenterology departments if it's run properly and if it's billed properly. And this is what it does. And this, so by the end of it, I kind of had a choice. I could either go back to, you know, just do, running my successful private practice and, and, and things or was it time to kind of step up and, and do something different? So I decided to kind of go for it. And, um, you know, I joined the national committees um, to help 
set up the training, get accreditation processes that would be the foundation for sort of improving geophysiology in the UK and employed the principles of what I've been talking about, of setting up a successful geophysiology service, not only for private patients, but also for for the NHS sector. And Nick, you set up Reflux UK in 2015. And um, I was wondering why you started that and why you work so closely with Anthony. Well, I think Anthony and I share many of the same principles and ideas. Um, for many years, I, I led a team treating patients with esophageal cancer. And in the last 20 or 30 years, it's been become well established that um, when you're treating complex conditions where today you really need the input of a whole team of specialists who can bring their varying expertise in particularly around the decision making uh, around how best to treat patients and then how to actually do it how to actually uh, treat these people it always struck me that it was slightly odd that whilst that's become well established in the treatment of cancer for instance it's not really established in uh, in other complex conditions, of which gastroesophageal reflux is certainly one. And I guess I should emphasise that when I say gastroesophageal reflux, that's one of the conditions which can present with symptoms you know, from the esophagus and, and stomach, which can be indistinguishable from each other, sometimes just on um, in terms of what the history is, what patients feel and what patients tell you they think is wrong with them. So I, I, I guess the, the first principle was I th- I felt really strongly that we should bring this MDT type approach to the assessment and treatment of these patients. And, and another principle as well, which has become so well established in the treatment of cancer and other complex conditions, for instance, cardiac surgery, is that centralization and bringing the people who treat patients as well as the infrastructure that you need, because increasingly the technology we have in terms of diagnosis and treatment is sophisticated and expensive and, and you need to centralise that, uh, that infrastructure. It's, it's well established now that if you, if you do centralise those teams um, and the treatment of these complex conditions, you get better outcomes and patients do better. So that was really the genesis of, of Reflux UK. Why I work so closely with Anthony, as I think we're going to explore today, is that uh, the diagnostic testing of patients with these symptoms is absolutely critical to getting the getting the right outcomes and working with him and his team and and everybody else is we think so important so anthony and his team are absolutely critical to our mdt approach thank you yes the term foregut is something that we hear quite often in foregut disease and i wondered if you could explain what that actually means and why we need tests to diagnose functional foregut disease. Because after all, most people think you know, reflux is just reflux. When you said, what do we mean about foregut disease and why do we need tests? I think the key word here is functional. Now, when we set up the functional gut clinic, a lot of people said that this was quite a negative connotation with the word functional. So functional practitioners, functional diagnosis, basically was a kind of sign of failure that you know you were either going to look for alternative medicine practices or you were you didn't know what was going on so you said somebody had functional heartburn so functional heartburn for people who don't know means that 
you've got no evidence of inflammation, you've got no evidence of acid reflux, but you still get the symptoms. So they call it functional heartburn, but it doesn't really mean anything. Someone's still getting symptoms. So it was a negative diagnosis. And at the start of it, I said, look, guys, you know, what does functional really mean? It means, well, how is the gut function? So you can do an endoscopy and look at the pictures and it might look perfectly healthy. But then when you look at how the gut functions, it may function really poorly. So I very much stood my ground on that and said, we were going to reclaim the F word. Uh, was in all of my initial presentations. Uh, and the, and the, a functional diagnosis should be first step in a positive diagnostic pathway. So your esophagus looks fine, but it's not functioning properly. The valve at the bottom's not opening or your peristalsis is too weak. And then the same with the stomach. So, you know, your stomach doesn't empty properly or it doesn't relax properly or uh, it empties too quickly. That is a, that is a product of the function. So functional foregut for me is a really positive thing because what you've done is you first of all normally excluded a structural problem or something nasty like a cancer or something like that and said okay so let's now and look at how the esophagus is working look at how the stomach is working and then move down the track until we've answered the questions we need to try and find out what's causing the patient's symptoms so why do you need tests because pictures don't tell you anything you need to do the test because the tests tell you not only what the physiology is, but also what the functional consequence of that physiology is. And what I mean by that is that you can have a swallow where the lower esophageal sphincter doesn't relax properly. And then when we look at something like impedance at the same time, that looks as the the liquid as it travels through, we can see the functional consequence of that is it doesn't go into the stomach and you get regurgitation of that. So you put it all together and then Nick has a nice picture that says, right, okay, I've got the confidence now to go in, get rid of that obstruction at the lower end of the esophagus and then someone swallowing should really improve and it's that kind of tying together so it's putting a degree of objectivity to the imagery that you get from uh, some of the other tests that we do like endoscopy. So Nick, Anthony's obviously told us what he means by full gut functionality and what sort of conditions do you think are associated with that and how much of a crossover can there be with other pathology and causes of these symptoms? Well, when I was a medical student, I was always taught that when you're reaching a diagnosis, 85% of the diagnosis comes from listening to the patient's symptoms, 10% from the physical examination, and 5% from tests that you might order. And it's certainly true that listening to what patients say to you when trying to reach a diagnosis with people who think they may have esophageal or, or, or gastric problems is really critical. But despite years of experience and training, you can sometimes get it wrong. I've lost count of the number of patients I've seen over the years who've been given PPIs and Meprazole and drugs like that because it's been assumed they've got gastroesophageal reflux disease. And and then suddenly they get an attack of acute inflammation of their gallbladder. They had their gallbladder out and their reflux symptoms all disappear. And of course, the reason was they never had reflux in the first place. It was always the gallstones causing the problem. So you've got to listen to patients, but ultimately at the end of the day, there is an enormous crossover in the symptoms which patients perceive is coming from the foregut, coming from the esophagus, coming from the stomach, coming from the small bowel, because those organs can only represent symptoms in, in a limited number of ways. And patients are only able to interpret those symptoms in a certain, in a relatively small number of ways. So when we, we come to do tests, we're probably doing three main things. Well, firstly, we're trying to substantiate our diagnosis. If we think that somebody has got a has got gallstones, for instance, we would do an ultrasound to prove that. Or if we think somebody might have gastroesophageal reflux disease, we might do an endoscopy to see if they've got a hiatus hernia or inflammation in the esophagus. But we're also looking to exclude a whole host of other problems, 
Cancers, for instance, uh, can present with symptoms which sound identical to reflux and vice versa. We might be looking to exclude complications caused by the condition which we're exploring. So, for instance, somebody in reflux, we might be looking to exclude Barrett's esophagus, perhaps, or a narrowing, a stricture in the esophagus caused by chronic inflammation. And then we're also looking to guide us in our treatment. So the test that we do might might distinguish particular nuances, which will mean that we might suggest one operation rather than another. So those are the things that we're, we're doing constantly when we're doing all, all our investigations is, is trying to get to a place where we are as confident as we can that we know what the problem is and we come up with the right treatment plan. So you've mentioned some of the tests that are available um, to help us diagnose patients. With endoscopy, could you explain how this is done and what sort of information you're looking for? Because obviously how you carry out an endoscopy may be very different to how somebody else carries it out and whether there's a variation in the quality and the reporting on endoscopies. Well, it's undoubtedly true that there is variation, and there have been lots of studies that have shown that, that you know, the, the length or, or indeed even the presence, for instance, of Barrett's esophagus or hiatus hernias will, will vary between uh, different units. That's undoubtedly, undoubtedly true. In terms of what an endoscopy is, an endoscopy essentially these days means inserting a flexible scope, usually via the mouth, very occasionally through the nose, in through the back of the throat, into the esophagus, stomach, and then duodenum. It's usually performed with some sedation, but sometimes just with local anaesthetic spray, and it allows the operator to actually look at the anatomy. So they, they can look at uh, the stomach and the esophagus and the duodenum, and they can visualize it. And when they're trained, they'll be able to recognize what's normal, and they'll be able to understand what's not normal. It also, of course, allows one to take samples, biopsies, uh, which can then be analysed, and that might allow the diagnosis conditions which either might reflect what you see endoscopically, so what the operator actually sees, they might take biopsies to confirm it, and sometimes it won't. So you can take biopsies, for instance, to demonstrate if somebody's got H. pylori, which might not be apparent just by by looking at the stomach. Th- those biopsies will also potentially help guide what treatment is going to be. And then finally, of course, endoscopy can also be performed therapeutic procedures, which I don't think we're talking about today. But, you, you know, you can remove polyps, dilate strictures, and, and these days do all sorts of really clever things without making any cuts in the skin, but do it all endoscopically. And do sort of radiological um, tests like sort of barium swallows and CTs and ultrasound scans, do they help? Well, again... Uh, radiology is used uh, when there are other conditions which are found. So, for instance, if somebody might be found to have a, a cancer, use radiology to stage that. Sometimes when planning surgery, so for instance, somebody with a really large hiatus hernia, what we call a parasophageal or type 3 or type 4 hiatus hernia, that's when most of the stomach is in the chest, we might use CT then to define the uh, anatomy. And historically, people used to use what are called barium swallows. So this is studies where you you ask patients to swallow a, a radiopaque dye and then take a series of x-rays. That allows some understanding of function, how the esophagus is actually working. For instance, when people are swallowing, it can identify problems in the throat, uh, in particular with swallowing. And it, but really, these days, that's the limit of its use. So its use to assess function has really, I think, become historic and would be used only, I think, very occasionally in, in most people's practice today. Thank you. And Anthony, moving on to functional testing, can you tell us a little bit about the evolution in physiology testing? 
and how it's changed and what it's what's enabling this evolution. I understand it's moved on quite a bit and quite quickly in the last few years. Yes, yeah, so the real advances have been in the resolution of the techniques that we look at, just like our super high definition TVs now, you know, give us a much better picture of what's going on. When I started about 30 years ago, then the esophageal manometry, which is a test which looks at how esophageal peristalsis functions, uh, was on a grass polygraph machine with ink pens and paper. Um, and, and slowly the um, number of channels that we use to measure esophageal function has gone from four to eight and then to 16, and now it's up to 36 channels. So we get a much better picture of the esophagus from the back of the throat all the way down to the stomach. Instead of looking at lines and peaks and graphs, we have translated that into color plots. So it's a much more intuitive picture to look at. And we've also been able to add things like impedance. And, and as Nick talks about barium swallows there, impedance means it's looking at electrical signals in the esophagus. And when you swallow liquid, it creates a low impedance signal in the esophagus. And you can actually see the liquid going down the esophagus. So it's a little bit like a virtual x-ray or barium swallow at the same time as the manometry. So instead of doing a, a basic manometry where we just looked at waves and peaks and then did a barium, we can now do one test that takes about 10 to 15 minutes with a tiny tube that measures how all the peristalsis works from the back of the throat down to the stomach. And then it looks at how the liquid, or we can give bread, or we can give porridge, we can give all sorts of different things. We can give meals during the test. And we can see how that goes and then how the stomach handles that. So the technology is um, truly amazing. And to the extent now where, you know, this, this grass polygraph looked like a, a huge fridge freezer and it would take up a huge part of the room where now we can just take a backpack along to clinic, set up in an outpatient's room, connect that to a laptop, and we've got a, a fully functioning geophysiology lab in situ within the space of about half an hour. You know, the test involves putting nasogastric tubes down, but these are now three millimeters in diameter, so they're, they're really quite tolerable. So everything has become easier for us and the patients because it's quite hard to measure physiological function when someone's either gagging or retching or, or you know feeling in discomfort where now we can just quietly put the tube down let people rest for a few moments and then then do things really calmly and effectively i still think there's much room for improvement in some of the other tests i think we'll touch on in a moment so so it's the combination of an improvement in technology but also an improvement in how we integrate our understanding and build a better picture for a full diagnostic picture i know people are always scared of having you know catheter up their nose to to do bits and pieces, aren't they? So reassuring to know. That's it. As long as you do it very, you know, gently with a bit of local anaesthetic and, uh, you know, all of our staff are, uh, you know, highly trained and we all put tubes down each other. So we have a great deal of both sympathy and empathy. So, um, you know, it's it's part of our training to, to sort of feel those things. He's not volunteering yet. <laughs> so high resolution manometry, what does that actually measure and how is that done? You know, what sort of abnormalities can that show up? Well, manometry is one of the tests that we, we use to actually assess function in the esophagus and, and specifically how the nerves and the muscles are, are coordinating and working together. It allows us to assess how the valves at the top and the bottom of the esophagus are working and how the normal contraction of muscle of the muscles in the wall of the esophagus, which will take food and drink and saliva from the top to the bottom, how they're actually working. And there are, there are some conditions where there are specific abnormalities of that function and which defined by that abnormality. So for instance, there's a condition called achalasia where people find it difficult to swallow because the valve at the bottom of the esophagus doesn't relax normally when they eat and the muscles in the esophagus subsequently stop working properly. And that 
that can be diagnosed and, and indeed these days should only be diagnosed with, with these manometry tests. And as Anthony said earlier on, pretty straightforward test where a tiny tube is put through the nose into the esophagus and then a, a series of swallows using a specific protocol form. So it's a, it's a simple, straightforward diagnostic test to look at how, how the, the esophagus is actually functioning. And, and as a surgeon, we use it to assess how we think People are going to be able to cope with the new valve or the strengthened valve that we're going to we're going to give them as a result of anti-reflux surgery. Um, so it will help, firstly, make absolutely sure that there, there's not a, a, another motility disorder like achalasia for which an anti-reflux operation would be disastrous. And secondly, it can help guide what the operation will, will suggest. And I think it's worthwhile pointing out that even today, there are many places who will offer surgery, who won't assess esophageal motility in this way. And, and we would say that that was, that was not offering patients the best opportunity of a good outcome. And Anthony, you mentioned impedance studies and the pH catheter. Can you tell me what the difference is and, and what each one of them are sort of measuring? So impedance has been with us for probably about 15 years now. And really, it was the realisation that if you just measure pH... Uh, or acidity levels, then you may be missing very important components of, of reflux disease. Because when you eat a meal, then the pH in the stomach rises because the acid mixes with the meal. And therefore, if you get reflux during that period, it may create symptoms, but it would be invisible to a pH-only probe because the pH would be neutral. So you would get a neg- false negative test, essentially. And that's not particularly um, important if you've got a patient who's got Barrett's esophagus or esophagitis and hiatus hernia responds well to PPI because you've pretty much already got a diagnosis of reflux in those patients. But that's only a small proportion of, of what we measure. So we have people whose main symptom could be belching or bloating or regurgitation. But even things like heartburn can be associated with non-acidic reflux. And we see this quite commonly. So impedance allows us to look at gas and liquid as it travels up and down the esophagus. So if I was to drink some fizzy pot, then you would get a high impedance signal as it went down the esophagus, or if I was to swallow some air. And then if I belch that out, you'll be able to see as a color plot, usually a kind of dark blue pull this air being regurgitated. And likewise, we can do the same with liquid. So you can see if liquid has been swallowed and cleared properly, or you can see whether that liquid has been regurgitated. And then you can also look at how high that liquid comes up. So lots of people who have throat symptoms, we can actually see that the liquid can either come up to the mid part of the esophagus and then get cleared, or it can come all the way up to the back of the throat and then linger in this region. So again, it's a little bit like increasing the bandwidth of what we're looking at. So pH only just looks at acid, and that's fine for some people. But for the majority of people, then we need to look at impedance as well, because otherwise we'll miss some of the most important things. And I guess the other thing we also consider is behavior. You know, there are some people who become chronic aerophagic patients. So this is a condition where people have some discomfort and they want to try and belch. So they swallow lots of air and then force the air to be regurgitated. And they can do this two, three, four hundred times a day. And that behavior becomes the main driver of their condition. And there are other conditions like rumination where people forcibly regurgitate their food after meals. And all of these things can be can disguise or, or, or you know, the real cause of, of symptoms of gastroesophageal reflux. So, you know, impedance is invaluable in the majority of patients. But if we've got fairly basic diagnosis of, of like I say, esophagitis or Barrett's, then Bravo or a pH study is, is fine. I, I think it's just worth emphasizing something that Anthony just touched upon there. Um, 
So by common convention, gastroesophageal reflux disease is defined by excess acid being measured in the bottom of the esophagus. That's what most people recognize the definition is. But I think, as Anthony just explained, increasingly we do know that the symptoms caused by non-acidic reflux can be sometimes very similar, but sometimes rather different. So particularly patients with laryngopharyngeal symptoms, so-called silent reflux, we think that very often their symptoms can be caused by non-acidic reflux, other things that will come up from the stomach beyond just acid. And we don't have the ability to measure those things. We can't measure pepsin directly, for instance, which is a corrosive enzyme produced in the esophagus, which can irritate the throat. So the ability to measure non-acidic reflux is really, really important. And it's very often not available generally. So patients will be given pH tests and don't measure just the acid, but not an impedance test. So these nuances, these patients with non-acidic reflux will not be identified. And similarly, Anthony talked about rumination syndrome. It's an unusual but uh, devastating uh, uh, problem that particularly young people tend to get. And it can look on, uh, on first glance really quite similar to the regurgitation, which patients might get with straightforward nasty reflux. And if you just do a pH test, you'll think that they just got reflux. You might offer them an anti-reflux operation and you won't actually realize that the real problem is quite different. It's this rumination behavioral problem. And so access to the right tests is really, really important. And and sadly, uh, these more sophisticated modern tests are not widely always widely. And just to add to that, um, you know, PPIs, uh, which are the commonest antacid medications, only reduce acid secretion. They do very little. They reduce volume a little bit, but they'll do very little to help with non-acidic reflux and all of these other conditions. So, you know, for the patients that we tend to see that are refractory or, or you know, not getting benefit from PPIs, it makes it even more important to do a impedance study as part of the pH test. And we always look at the um, acidity in the stomach throughout the 24-hour period as well, because sometimes we find patients that have got a very low acid secretion, so they have something called achloridia. So they may be piling in more and more antacid um, drugs, but they actually don't produce stomach acid. And, you know, that can be quite a profound diagnosis when we make it. So, you know, it really is the gold standard. Um, and even though it's a little bit uncomfortable to have a probe down for 24 hours, it is only 24 hours. And that information could make a, you know, a huge difference to that patient's, the rest of that patient's life. Yes, that test is obviously invaluable. You've also got the Bravo device, which uses a wireless little device. Why do you use that, Nick? What are the pros and cons versus impedance? And are they accurate? And do you get sort of day-to-day variations with them? Or do people relax more by having that down and not a catheter? Well, Bravo study involves placing a tiny little capsule at the bottom of the esophagus. It, it attaches to the lining of the esophagus, the mucosa, with a little tiny pin. It's placed endoscopically. So you do need to have a, an endoscopy to place it. And it will measure acid reflux over usually two, but sometimes up to four days. So <clears throat> there are pros and cons. And I think, you know, in my, to my mind, if you have somebody who hasn't had an endoscopy and has classical acid type symptoms, so they get heartburn, regurgitation, which respond to PPIs, then doing a Bravo study on them is great because you can do the endoscopy, you can make sure they don't have Barrett's esophagus, you can look to see if they've got a high hernia or any other anatomical problem. And you can combine that with a test which will measure the reflux over two or or maybe a prolonged period of time. And I think, so you asked, is the variation 
And I think that's definitely the case. We know from lots of scientific studies that you know there is variation. Patients with reflux will tell you one day is likely to be better than another or maybe a week. And if you do the tests on the day when you're not getting a lot of symptoms and they're caused by reflux, then you won't measure a lot of reflux. So the ability to prolong the study can sometimes be advantageous because you might miss one day, but pick up the reflux on another day. And I think you also touched upon the discomfort which the nasal catheter, despite the fact they're small and Anthony says they're very comfortable, some patients do find it difficult, undoubtedly. And because with a Bravo capsule, the data is all sent wirelessly via to a little recorder, it's very easily tolerated. Most people don't know it's there, occasionally a bit of chest pain. But then on the other hand, somebody who's got predominantly symptoms associated with their throat, who perhaps has had an endoscopy and they've been told they've got a high tetanus, so they're quite likely to have reflux, but they've not responded to PPIs, I would take the view that in those patients, actually, probably a Bravo study is not going to be so helpful as an impedance study because we want to measure non-acidic reflux. So in that case, I would probably, as a first-line test, do an impedance study. And then sometimes patients will have had one test or the other test that have had a Bravo or an impedance And I, as the clinician, am absolutely convinced they've got reflux. There's maybe corroborative evidence. And the patient is really keen to do something. They want that clear diagnosis. So we will then do whatever test they haven't had. And and probably about half the time, we'll get a positive test when the first test was negative. So it's very often like building up a sort of a pixelated image. You know, up close, you just see lots of pixels but you, when you when you do all the, the tests, it builds up a picture. And I think these tests are do they measure different things, but sometimes the same thing. So they they tend to be complementary, and you have to use them very much, uh, you know, using your clinical judgment as to what you expect and would want them to show to guide your treatment. And, a, and another test is the ResTech test, which I believe is relatively new. And is that is that to help you diagnose patients maybe with LPR? And how does it actually work, Anthony? So the best description I've been given of how ResTech works is that if you were to hold the probe above a glass of Coke or fizzy water, all of those sort of aerolized bubbles that contain CO2 and acid would give you a drop in pH to about 4.5. Whereas if you held a pH probe, traditionally used above that region, it wouldn't. It would need to be submerged in liquid to produce a signal. So the ResTech probe will detect liquid reflux, but it will also detect aerolyzed reflux. And why is that important? Well, what we're slowly understanding, and and this is still, the technology is probably, again, about 10 years old, and a lot of people assessed ResTech, including ourselves, when it came out. And we just couldn't really quite figure out the physiology of what we were measuring. So it wasn't very intuitive that we could see changes in acidity in the pharynx, but we couldn't see matching reflux episodes with pH probe in the esophagus at the same time. Time. And, you know, I think the jury is, is still out and we're doing quite a lot of work at the moment to try and understand how these things might differ. But if I just give you an example, when you belch during the day, what do you do as soon as you belch? That gas comes out and then you swallow and that swallow contains bicarbonate that then neutralizes whatever's come up from the stomach. But actually venting gas from the stomach is a perfectly natural physiological process that has to happen. Now, if you get liquid reflux, what tends to happen is you get a stimulation of receptors in the esophagus and everything tends to close 
rather than open. And then you get secondary peristalsis to, to clear that out. So it's a completely different type of reflux. So gas reflux, a little bit comes up, it's mildly acidic, you swallow, it gets neutralized, that's natural. But what happens if that gas comes up at night time? So when you're lying in bed at night and the gas is in the stomach for whatever reason, whether you've got you know excessive fermentation or you've got slow gastric emptying, then the stomach senses that gas wants to be released. So the sphincter opens, that allows gas to come up into the esophagus. Some of that gas then comes into the laryngopharyngeal regions and, and mouth, but you're fast asleep. So you don't swallow to clear it. One of the, the functions we see with impedance is that people can go several hours at nighttime without swallowing. And swallowing is our best mechanism of defense against reflux. So if you're getting even small amounts of regurgitation of weakly acidic contents or as Nick alluded to, pepsin and other digestive enzymes, and they're sitting there in the throat for a long time until you suddenly wake up, roll over and swallow, then that in itself can cause injury. And I think for me, this is going to be one of the most exciting areas of research that we move into over the next year or two is to try and prove this concept exists, that there's a different type of reflux that has a physiological mechanism that isn't well treated by PPIs, but actually can cause significant symptoms in people with LPR. But I think fundamentally as well, this might help to explain in a lot of respiratory disease conditions where people get lung damage, which can actually often be life-threatening, things like um, IPF and other fibrotic conditions that actually is this the primary mechanism of reflux in these patients? So as a physiologist and a scientist, we, you've always got to keep an open mind about the limitations of what the technology can do, but also to try and explore observed phenomena. And we observe this nighttime acidification of the pharynx, which is relatively invisible to standard pH and impedance. And therefore, it's our duty now to try and interrogate that further and prove that this is a model. So Nick, patients, some patients present with gastroparesis and such like, and you, do you send them for gastric emptying studies? And what other symptoms may they present with? And how is this done? The stomach can fail to empty for a number of reasons. And I, I suppose the first point to make is it's really important to, uh, to establish whether or not there's a, a treatable cause for that problem. Elderly patients, for instance, that can include some malignant conditions. And sometimes there are other identifiable causes. So for instance, the use of specific drugs, opiates, particularly patients with diabetes. But very often it's the, the, the stomach doesn't empty properly for reasons which we don't really understand, perhaps secondary to a virus or perhaps secondary to a problem with the, the valve at the bottom of the esophagus actually relaxing. Condition which is generally not very well understood, I think. I think it's fair to say. Having said that, the worst end of the spectrum, delayed gastric emptying, so the stomach not emptying properly after you eat, will cause bloating, nausea, or even vomiting when you do try to eat. And people won't be able to eat, eat anything more than a few mouthfuls of food without becoming very uncomfortable. But there's obviously a spectrum of severity, and at the, the less severe end, patients don't really suffer those kind of symptoms, but rather because, to use Anthony's phrase, there is a functional holdup in the stomach, so the stomach isn't empty quite as well as it should. The pressure inside the stomach perhaps is a little bit higher than it should be. And that then can sometimes present itself with esophageal symptoms. It's a little bit like putting a dam across the river. It, you, you know, As the pressure in the stomach goes up, people might get more reflux, they might belch a bit more, and that will cause esophageal types. So I think increasingly recognizing that, that this is the case, that very low-grade delayed gastric emptying can present with symptoms which can be indistinguishable from reflux, 
And so we will very often, if there's any question in the history of feeling bloated or, or, or belching after people eat, feeling full, then we will test gastric emptying. We can do that in, in two ways, really. We can use it using radionucleotides and, and x-rays, so people swallow, and then we watch to see how the, the stomach empties by looking at x-rays and, or, or alternatively picking up that radioactivity in, in the stomach and how quickly it empties. Or we can do it with breath tests, so a similar kind of idea where people eat a meal which has been labelled with a, a very low dose of nuclear activity, and then then we look to see how that's excreted in the breath, and that will tell us how quickly the stomach is emptying. That's a really good test, which Anthony and his team do. It's pretty accurate, and patients can do it at home, so it's very straightforward. And obviously that, again, will influence our treatment of patients I've got reflux symptoms because their stomach isn't emptying properly. Treatment will be profoundly different than if they've got primary problem with reflux and, and failure of the valve at the, at the bottom of the esophagus. I suppose it's all about building up a picture of all these patients' complex um, presentations, isn't it? EGG, electrogastrography, what value does that have in diagnosing reflux disease, Anthony? Is it used in day-to-day clinical practice or well, not? EGG is another test that's been around for quite a long time. And again, used in isolation, it tells you, um, it's a little bit like doing an ECG of the heart. So you put three electrodes across the abdominal wall and the stomach has an inherent pacemaker activity of three cycles per minute. So that tells you whether the nerves in the stomach are functioning properly at baseline. And then you can introduce a challenge to the stomach and see how those those nerve impulses change. So it's a little bit like going on a treadmill with an ECG. What you do with uh, EGG is either give water or a meal to the stomach and see how that changes. And again, in isolation, we kind of stopped doing this because we didn't think it was very important. But there's a, a gentleman called uh, Mark Noah from the States who worked with another gastroenterologist called Ken Cock, who's really been able to use analysis algorithms to look at different scenarios with EGG. And very simply put, the stomach needs an intact valve at the top and and a fully working valve at the bottom of the stomach to be able to mix contents and empty properly. And if things are a little bit weak in patients with a high ternary, for example, as the stomach contracts to mix the food, then that's when reflux can occur. So the stomach can't function properly to empty. uh, And actually, sometimes correcting the hiatal defect improves gastric emptying. So there's one scenario. You've got another scenario where the valve at the bottom of the stomach doesn't open, the pylorus, and this is called pyloric outflow obstruction. So this can cause quite a lot of abdominal pain. So as the stomach contracts to try and empty, you should then get a relaxation of the pylorus and small amounts of digested food will go into the small bowel. But if that doesn't occur, the pressure will build up and eventually that can lead to um, you know, vomiting or, or abdominal pain. So If you take the gastric emptying study and then put that together with an EGG study, you've suddenly got, again, you've got images and pictures of of what's going on, and then you've got the uh, mechanistic functional data to go with it. So you've got a person who's got delayed gastric emptying who um, has a reduced EGG signal after the challenge, and that generally occurs because they're venting pressure through the hiatal defect, and vice versa. If the pressure goes up, it tends to be because they've got a blockage at the pylorus. So then Nick can go away and say, okay, for this patient, we're going to you know, repair the hiatus hernia, and that should normalize the, the gastric function. Or 
dilate the pylorus, which would relieve the pressure at the bottom, like you would do with an achalasia patient at the lower sphincter, and that should allow the emptying to occur there. So again, this is a fairly new way of combining these tests, but it helps us to understand why some patients do better than others. Because if you've not explored causes of what would cause, you know, a failed anti-reflux operation, uh, for example, then it, you know you never kind of learn from that. So by integrating EGG into gastric emptying and, and reflux testing you start to build a big picture. And again, you don't need to do this in all patients, but it's those patients where you suspect things are a little bit more complex, where it's really helpful. Thank you. And we we seem to be having more and more patients presenting with small intestinal bacterial overgrowth or SIBU. And I wonder if you could both sort of uh, tell me the symptoms that they present with and the breath tests that we do, how accurate these are. Perhaps I'll just start that quickly. I'm not sure that there are necessarily more people presenting with SIBU. I think we're just thinking about it more often and doing the tests and making the diagnosis perhaps more frequently than we were. Just to remind people what SIBU is, small intestinal bacterial overgrowth is this condition where part of the gut immediately after the stomach, which is normally relatively sterile, there aren't many bugs in it, it becomes colonized by microorganisms which digest carbohydrates predominantly which we eat and that sets off a whole chain reaction including symptoms of which they can include bloating wind and, and belching as well as bowel problems and we've done another uh, another podcast on SIBO so I'm not I'm not going to dwell on the symptoms and the treatment but needless to say there are definitely some patients who we see who present uh, with symptoms which can look as if they are gastroesophageal reflux disease, particularly patients, it seems, who've got laryngopharyngeal reflux. Uh, we think because they've been taking antacid tablets, which do seem to be associated with, with the development of SIBU, quite possibly because normally the acid in the stomach will kill the bugs that we eat and prevent them colonized in the small bowel. And it does seem that biome in the gut changes when you take PIs. So we see a lot of patients, perhaps, who've had reflux, they've been treated with, with PPIs, it seems that then causes SIBU, which can then make their symptoms worse because they're belching and they, they get given more PPIs and it seems that it can then get into a bit of a vicious cycle. So we think that's quite a common scenario. And we can test for SIBU with some simple breath tests. You swallow a, a sugary liquid, which passes into the small bowel. And if there are bugs there which ferment them, they will release methane or, or hydrogen gas. And, and that can then be measured in a series of pots, which you breathe into. And That'll tell us with a reasonable degree of accuracy whether or not somebody's got SIBO or not. And then we'll be faced with the problem of trying to disentangle whether the SIBO is the primary cause of their problem or consequence upon the tri- of the treatment of something else. So it, it is, a, a, as I think we've, we've touched upon, it's another test which will help build up the picture and help us you know, reach that, that best treatment plan for every individual patient. It's, it's, it's very rare I think that a single test will give us the answer. We're increasingly getting to the point where we realise that more and more and more. Anthony, did you want to add anything? Or Yeah, to me, it's been very intuitive all along that bacterial overgrowth um, is, is going to be contributing uh, to, to symptoms. And if you think about what bacterial overgrowth is, I just love this quote that, that says it talks about the putrefication of proteins within within the small bowel and, and things that should be happening in the colon, which is actually designed to be our kind of sewage plant, occur in the small bowel, which is supposed to be our pristine 
laboratory where it's processing our food and giving us our nutrition. So it's quite gross when you think about it. And, uh, you know, for patients who suffer from SIBO, they describe it to me as feeling like they've been poisoned every day. So everything they eat, whether it's healthy or unhealthy, just makes them feel miserable. And, you know, a positive diagnosis of SIBO and then a treatment with, with a non-absorbable safe antibiotic that in a lot of people, to 70% of people who test positive for a breath test respond to the antibiotic. It's like a miracle for them. And it can come back because the underlying causes may, you know, may be more chronic. So if you've got poor motility, but at least it gives people a sense of, of relief that actually problems been identified. And for some people, one course of antibiotics eradicates it completely. And if not, then you can enter into a program of, of more detailed treatment to try and figure out the, the consequences. But, you know, SIBO is common it's treatable and you know it's actually a good news story for for a lot of people who've, who've spent years being told that they don't have anything wrong with them and you know nick will attest that i'm sure that being able to put that in the context of all the other things that we're measuring is a really important way of ensuring that people get optimum treatment so um yeah placebo is a you know it's here to stay and nick the final test i was going to ask you about was the pep test i know that relatively simple to do but are there sort of normal ranges how accurate are they? Well, the rationale for the PEP test, as uh, uh, we touched upon earlier on, is the, is the idea that it isn't just acid which causes symptoms in the throat and that one of the other substances which can come up from the gut is this powerful enzyme secreted in the stomach called pepsin. And there currently are no ways of directly measuring pepsin in clinical practice. So we can't measure in the same way that you can measure acid minute by minute being measure a bit being uh, refluxed into the bottom of the esophagus uh, with traditional pH testing or Bravo. We can't measure it, uh, uh, pepsin in the throat with, as you can acid with ResTech, as Anthony explained a little bit earlier on. And when we've tried to test other uh, substances, bilirubin, for instance, 20 years or so, there was a vogue for measuring bilirubin, which didn't really help and wasn't really substantiated as a useful tool. So we're slightly hamstrung in being able to measure pepsin, which we think is is potentially so important in, in setting up these laryngopharyngeal symptoms. And that's where PEP test comes in. So the idea was that simply patients would spit into I think three pots and then you send it off to a lab and they'd tell you whether or not it was positive or not. And if there was more pepsin than they told you was normal, then that meant you got got reflux. The problem is with PEP test, although it's a good idea, it's a nice thought that you could test so easily, just hasn't been borne out by, by, by scientific evidence. And it just is very inaccurate. The variation uh, of what's called the sensitivity of the specificity bit. So being able to diagnose people positively and being able to exclude people who haven't got reflux with PEP test just doesn't seem to, uh, to work. So a lot of people come clutching their results saying, well, I must have reflux because I've done a PEP test and it's positive. I'm afraid I, I have to explain why we can't rely on it to guide our treatment because it just isn't accurate. So looking at all of the um, tests that, um, we've discussed, how accurate are they? And is there a one killer test or, that you would use to form a diagnosis? And are there sort of gaps in the tests or? Well, Anthony, Anthony tells me all the time his tests are very accurate. So why don't I get him to answer that first? And then I'll tell him. What... Quite interesting because we've just been asked as part of our accreditation process naturally to come up with you know the, the margins for error of all of these tests because there are variations and it depends on the complexity of the question. Because if I get someone to swallow when they're in the upright position compared to when they're in the supine position, then you get completely different different data. So 
you know, what are the things that we can definitively say? Well, I can definitively say to Nick whether a patient has achalasia or not, because that's been well classified. It's uh, there are three subtypes and very good accordance in, in agreement. Now, if Nick says to me, this patient doesn't have any swallowing difficulties, but your test shows that he has fairly weak motility. In the past, I would have kind of gone, well, the test is the test. But because we now have impedance to go with the manometry, then I can say, well, it looks a little bit weak, Nick, compared, you know, compared to the normal values, but 100% of those swallows were effective. So therefore, this patient doesn't have dysphagia. He's got slight, you know, a, a muscle contraction that's slightly weaker than the normal range. But for him, that works perfect because there are lots of things that contribute to the things that we measure, such as you know the tightness of the lower esophageal sphincter will increase peristaltic amplitudes. If you've got a very weak sphincter, the esophagus is lazy; it doesn't work any harder than it has to. So you know, I think our tests are very accurate. The interpretation of the tests are a little bit more uh, creative. So what we don't want to do is to be in a situation where you get a number and you base a decision on that number. That's really difficult for me to get my head around because that number can be influenced by many different things. So what I try to do, and one of the things we're doing at the, the BSG meeting this year for people who are training in this field, is to really bring things back to basis and say, look, we're going to look at the esophagus, the stomach, and the small bowel. And first of all, we're going to try and remember what each of those regions does. Then we're going to look at what each of the test measures, and then we're going to talk about how we interpret that because people concentrate on the test result rather than the physiology, the function, and the symptoms. So it's bringing people back into that, you know, more about thinking uh, and integrated thinking about what we're measuring. But yeah, they're super accurate, Sue. Of course they are. I think they are accurate, but within two parameters, which I think one of which Anthony has spoken about, which is interpretation. You know, who does the test and how you interpret them against the clinical presentation is absolutely critical. And and uh, the physiology tests that Anthony and his team do are, are no more or less open to interpretation than any other test. So, you know, we know that when you do an endoscopy, as I mentioned earlier on, there's a great deal of variation. And that's because some will call a Barrett's segment Barrett's and somebody else will call it an irregular Z line. Or maybe somebody won't even look at it carefully at all and not, not commenting it at all because they're just popping the endoscope in as quickly as they can to see if somebody's got cancer or not. And there's been lots of studies that have, have demonstrated this. So the, I think the first thing is interpretation by experts in the context of you know the clinical presentation. And that is so important. That's why the MDT approach, the multidisciplinary team approach is so important. And the second thing, though, let's remember that people are all different and, and every day is different. So if, if you do your pH test in somebody on the day when they get no reflux, you may well not measure any reflux. But then not asking them, did you get a lot of symptoms the day that the, you, you were having the test? If you don't ask them that, they won't tell you and you'll just tell, 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 them, tell them to go away because you've not measured any reflux. So again, I think it, you know, you've always got to remember that people are different, what they do is different and the function of the foregut is influenced by all sorts of things, including what's going on in the brain. You know, I, I've seen tests that Anthony has done on big burly uh, rugby players and as soon as you show them the catheter, they've felt a bit faint and when you measure the motility in the esophagus it looks like it's weak and you measure it again and they they realize it's not quite so bad and it looks entirely normal so you've always got to remember patient variation yes thank you and sort of quickly moving on to sort of the new kids on the blocks so the latest innovations nick can you tell me a bit about endoflip and what it does and how it works yeah, well, EndoFlip is is, uh, is still a relatively new technology. It's uh, it's not widely available for sure in the UK. It effectively measures distensibility. So it's a balloon that you can put across valves, for instance, in the esophagus and then the stomach, and it will tell us 
uh, more detail about their surface area, about how they're actually functioning and their dispensability. I think it's certainly at the moment it, it has great potential to be used as a, a scientific tool, as an academic tool. And, it, it, you know, there are some surgeons who perhaps, who, for instance, are using it to, to help when, they, when they're doing an anti-reflux operation, for instance, to, to guide them in how accurately and how strong the new valve that they're making is actually, is actually functioning because you can measure the distensibility intraoperatively. So it's a, it's, a, it's a new tool, which I'm sure time will be yet another, another test, which will have its role and find its role and will find useful. But at the moment, I think it's, it's, it's not really widely available enough for us to, uh, to use day to day. And Anthony, can you tell me anything about the breath biopsy and how you do those and how you perform those? Just before I do that, um, EndoFlip, um, I was involved in 20 odd years ago, has shown my age tonight with the prototype of EndoFlip, uh, which was called impedance planimetry. And it was probably those studies that proved to everyone that you actually needed to perform this under anaesthetic because it, it was pretty horrific. But it is quite a cool technique um, and it has developed um, over the years. But um, as Nick said, it's um, you know it's still used as a guide for, for surgery and treatment rather than as a diagnosis diagnostic tool at the moment. Um, so breath biopsy is something that I'm doing in collaboration with a company called Alstone Medical in Cambridge. They've developed a technique of collecting chemicals in breath and we produce thousands of chemicals both um, as part of our body's metabolic processes but also these are products of fermentation from the gut that bacteria within the gut produce and what we're trying to do is see whether we can make breath testing much more sensitive by looking at specific chemicals. Um, one of the things we're looking at first studies are um, short chain fatty acids that we know have an effect on gut motility and appetite and all sorts of other things produced in large concentrations by bacterial fermentation. So uh, it's quite exciting new development to add much more resolution to the kind of breath testing that we can do. And hopefully we'll get a whole range of non-invasive diagnostics from using this breath biopsy technology in the future. And lastly, where do you think the future, what the future holds for GI testing in the next sort of five to 10 years? Nick, so if I take, to go first? Oh, well, I was, go I was going to go first there. I mean, I think what, what I'd like to see really is, and I know, and I hope that Nick has the same vision, is that if you look at some of the most successful areas of research, it's where you can concentrate volume and have all of the expertise on one site. And I would really hope that at some point we would be able to have a fully integrated foregut service standalone where patients you know, come in, they have access to all of the tests and all of the, clinic, um, you know, the clinical expertise and the surgical treatments under one roof. I think it's been a forgotten discipline in many ways, and yet it affects so many people. So I think we have the tools, we have the techniques we have a lot of the understanding and you know the skills to to help patients so bringing that all together under a under a roof into a, a centralized institution would be my dream for the next five to ten years well i agree with, with anthony i mean i think i said right at the, the, the top of this discussion that centralization of all the people and the infrastructure you need is is good for patients and volume does matter the more you do of anything better you get at it and increasingly the data that that generates is going to help us distinguish i think what patients need in terms of testing and so i i think that that is going to herald the new kind of concept of personalized medicine it's consistent with that so i i completely agree and i and i think also 
uh, although I've said it two or three times tonight, I think the idea of clinicians working together, concentrating their, their skills and, and, and working in partnership is just so important. Uh, hopefully this evening people have got a feel of just how complex some of the tests are and you know, being able to interpret those as a clinician with the people who do them is so important to me to get the best outcomes. And, and, and I just wish more people had the ability to run a, an MDT type process like Anson and I. So I think personalised medicine and working together more effectively. That's what I'd like to see. Well, thank you both very much for taking part tonight and for giving us such an insightful overview on physiological testing. Thank you.